Good morning. I'm Jerry Smith, a judge on the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. It's my privilege to moderate today's panel discussion entitled Regulatory Double Dipping, a panel sponsored by the Federal Society's Corporations, Antitrust, and Securities Practice Group. Uh, I'll introduce our distinguished panelists in just a minute. But first, uh, just a moment of discussion on what we'll be uh, covering today. Uh, in a world of globalization, whether we like it or not, uh, businesses and individuals operate in a regional and international environment. Uh, once being able to operate exclusively under a single locally imposed regulatory regime, they now have to comply oftentimes with not only that still existing regime, but also must be cognizant of and comply with a statewide regime, a national regime, and an international regime of regulation. Of course, there are typically 50 statewide regimes, often more than one national regime with competing agencies, and predictably several international regulatory regimes as well. In this environment, individuals and businesses are, in the first instance, faced with the challenge of determining exactly who is regulating their proposed activity, and once those regulators are identified, only then can individuals and corporations begin the labor and time-intensive process of sorting through the applicable treatises, laws, regulations, guidelines, etc., to which they're subject. It's become a very complicated world with multiple layers of regulation and enforcement, and I might add permanent employment for lots of attorneys. So what is the effect of, uh, of these multiple layers of regulation on businesses? Does or should the answer differ from one field to the next, from antitrust to securities regulation to labor issues? Do these multiple layers of regulation result in what we might call a race to the bottom, uh, whereby the most restrictive regulatory regime for all practical purposes becomes the one that's effective? If so, does that create an incentive to overregulation? And are there some helpful principles that can be illuminated to try to resolve uh, this situation? These and other questions will be addressed by our distinguished group of panelists, whom I will now uh, introduced to you uh, briefly in the order in which they'll appear. Paul Atkins was appointed by President George W. Bush to be a commissioner of the Securities and Exchange Commission in 2002 with a term expiring in 2008. Commissioner Atkins' 22-year career has focused on the financial services industry and securities regulation. Before his appointment as commissioner, he assisted financial services firms in improving their compliance with SEC regulations uh, and worked with law enforcement agencies to investigate and rectify situations where investors had been harmed. He began his career as a lawyer in New York, focusing on a wide range of corporate transactions for U.S. and foreign clients, including public and private securities offerings and mergers and acquisitions. He's a member of the New York and Florida Bars, received his J.D. from Vanderbilt, and was a senior student writing editor of the Vanderbilt Law Review. He received his A.B. from Wofford College and was a member of Phi Beta Kappa. Deborah Majoris is chairman of the Federal Trade Commission, sworn in in 2004. 
Her tenure has been marked by the FTC's strong efforts to pr protect consumers from emerging frauds, such as identity theft, spyware, and spam, with increased focus on business failures to implement adequate information security safeguards. In May 2006, uh, she was appointed by the President to be co-chair of the Federal Identity Theft Task Force. She joined the FTC after having been with Jones Day firm here in Washington, where she, she served as a partner in the firm's antitrust section, working on a variety of antitrust counseling and civil and criminal litigation matters. In 2001, she was appointed Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Antitrust Division and was named Principal Deputy in 2002. She's a graduate of Westminster College in Pennsylvania and of the University of Virginia Law School. Eugene Scalia is a partner in the D.C. office of Gibson, Dunn & Crutcher, co-chair of the firm's Labor and Employment Practice Group, and chair of the Administrative Law and Regulatory Practice Group. He's a member of the firm's Appellate and Constitutional Law Practice Group. He returned to Gibson Dunn in 2003 after a distinguished career as a service as solicitor of the U.S. Department of Labor, matters for which he had substantial responsibility there included investigation of the Enron pension plans, amendment of the white-collar overtime regulations, um, implementation of the whistleblower provisions of Sarbanes-Oxley. At Gibson Dunn, Mr. Scalia has a national labor and employment practice, and he's a leading authority on Sarbanes-Oxley. He's a, uh, <coughs> excuse me, a graduate of the University of Chicago Law School, where he was editor-in-chief. Um, and uh, graduated <clears throat> from the uh, undergraduate from the University of Virginia. Excuse me. And finally, Michael Greva is the John G. Searle Scholar at the uh, American Inst uh, Enterprise Institute in Washington where he directs the AEI Federalism Project. His research and writing cover American federalism in its legal, political, and economic dimensions, earned his PhD in government from Cornell, and co-founded and directed the Center for Individual Rights from 1989 to 2000. He serves on the board of directors of the Competitive Enterprise Institute, <clears throat> has written extensively on federalism and other aspects of American law. Excuse me. Dr. <clears throat> Grieva's current project is a book on the constitutional foundations of competitive federalism. These are our presenters, our panelists today. Um, each will have um, opening remarks of about eight minutes, and then um, we've asked each of them to give about a four-minute uh, response, and they can respond to each other or provide additional comments. And then we want to leave plenty of time uh, at the end for your uh, questions, which those are always an important part of our program. And we're scheduled to end promptly at 12.30 because the luncheon starts then. Um, and I was tempted to say that if we run over, we have a big screen here and we're going to simulcast the uh, Michigan-Ohio State game. <laughs> but since it starts at 3.30, I think we'll probably be, be through well uh, in advance of that. So uh, it's my privilege to begin uh, with uh, Paul Atkins. Uh, well, uh, thank you very much. Uh, 
Uh, maybe I'll uh, sit here if you all can uh, see well enough. Um, thank you, Judge Smith, uh, for that kind introduction. It's a pleasure to be here with you all today to talk about this uh, topic. Um, globalization, of course, is an inescapable reality, as uh, Judge Smith said. There are many causes, of course, uh, trade, better communications, the whole IT revolution, uh, competition for investing and the ending of um, exchange controls and uh, many foreign ownership restrictions in the past uh, couple decades. Of course, the collapse of Berlin Wall um, and the opening up of China um, have all contributed to uh, the globalization boom that we've seen. John Donne, uh, for you English majors, was a 17th century uh, poet, and uh, he wrote the famous uh, Meditation 17 where he said, no man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. And I think that's uh, an increasing realization, uh, of obviously around the world, especially not the least in Britain itself, but um, uh, among regulators it, it certainly is. We've seen in the United States the backlash against uh, some parts of Sarbanes-Oxley. Um, we've seen um, in the uh, public uh, securities markets uh, the New York Stock Exchange looking abroad now after they've uh, demutualized uh, to uh, team up with uh, Euronext through an acquisition, which will be um, voted on next uh, month, um, and also NASDAQ looking at uh, to acquire the London Stock Exchange. We had in our country here, um, the SEC experienced the ill-fated hedge fund rule, um, where we tried to uh, require registration of hedge funds, only to see how that encouraged hedge funds to flee abroad, and also for foreign hedge funds to close themselves to U.S. investors uh, to keep uh, uh, U.S. regulation away. Next month, the SEC will be uh, considering uh, finalization of a proposal we have outstanding to make it easier for foreign companies to deregister from the United States, which I think will um, off operate as sort of a safety valve um, or a, a for when uh, uh, regulations become too burdensome, we might see this uh, flight abroad and that might tell us when uh, we have uh, twisted the buttons a little bit too tightly. Um, the, uh, in Europe, there is a similar sort of uh, recognition about how barriers um, uh, to uh, free movement of capital are problematic. They have there been, over the past uh, 15 to 20 years, their moves for their own internal market to reduce barriers to competition and they have a number of different uh, proposals outstanding which will be kicking in in the financial markets here in the next year. And then also, last but not least, we see on the accounting side with um, the recognition of, of uh, uh, that the United States uh, needs to recognize international financial reporting standards, IFRS, and that U.S. gap is no longer necessarily the only game in town. And we realize that if we don't recognize that eventually by um, our goal is uh, 2009, that we may well have a trade war between the U.S. and uh, um, Europe uh, with respect to some of our um, accounting standards because the Europeans are a bit chafed that uh, we don't recognize their standards and, um, uh, and just require um, companies to file U.S. GAAP statements. Um, the responses to these challenges are, were some of those, but um, if you compare uh, the situation in the securities regulatory sphere with, um, say, the tax um, sphere, where you have the um, attempted pariah status of uh, various tax havens, and not the least even in Europe itself, uh, with uh, European politicians um, commenting against uh, uh, jurisdictions like Ireland, for example, that 
um, have lower taxes than others. Um, they, uh, there's a call for increased harmonization. Also, in the securities regulatory world, we see that as well. There's an organization, the International Organization of Cons uh, Securities Commissions, IASCO, uh, which has, over the years, come out with a number of uh, high-level principles, working papers, consultation reports, model codes of ethics, um, where they, if with respect to some of these, they threaten expulsion if the regulatory regimes do not um, uh, adhere to these common standards. Um, the SEC itself has entered into a number of uh, memorandum of understanding with various countries. Fifteen years ago, um, insider trading was not necessarily illegal in many jurisdictions, including Switzerland and others. But now virtually every um, uh, major market in the, the world uh, uh, has um, insider trading and other similar things where we in the United States um, have, uh, have sort of led the way in that realm. They have all adopted these same sort of things with a view towards, you know, wanting to be part of um, what they view as this international developed market club. But nonetheless, despite all that convergence, competition is an important element. If you look at the city of London, for example, um, they have thrived on competition and setting themselves uh, apart from, for example, the United States. Um, Post-World War II, the United States capital markets dwarfed all other markets out there. But a number of unilateral steps by the U.S. where we've shot ourselves in the foot have uh, increased the ability of other folks to compete with us. The first was uh, in the Kennedy administration back in 1963. There was what was called the Interest Equalization Tax, which was imposed on, uh, on uh, uh, borrowing um, for, uh, by U.S. companies and for uh, foreign companies. And the goal was to try to keep uh, U.S. capital in this country. And basically, it resulted essentially in a flight abroad of offerings to London um, because of the differential in, um, in yields that the tax resulted in. And likewise, the Federal Reserve had what was called Rank Q, which uh, placed a cap uh, on interest that banks could pay to um, bank accounts. And so when you had the high interest rate environment in the late 60s and early 70s, banks fled uh, um, all, many of their um, services to customers, fled abroad um, in order to be able to pay what their customers were demanding, and that was um, uh, interest rates on their money. And now, uh, laterally, we have uh, Sarbanes-Oxley, uh, which itself has, um, in, according to many people, resulted in uh, companies um, and other things looking abroad and looking to stay out of the United States. Um, with the London Stock Exchange, for example, through its what's called their alternate investment uh, market, um, even trying to get uh, uh, smaller U.S. companies to uh, list on uh, this market in London with um, a fair amount of uh, success. And we've seen the amount of uh, um, initial public offer offerings um, relative to the rest of the world decline in the United States uh, ten years ago. Uh, nine out of ten dollars uh, uh, worldwide um, raised through in, in initial public offerings were uh, raised in the United States. Today, nine out of ten uh, dollars um, raised globally through IPOs are raised abroad and essentially in London. So is this a race to the bottom, as, um, as uh, Judge Smith uh, um, 
uh, at least uh, mentioned uh, that some people are saying or charging. I'd say um, probably not. Uh, that uh, competition in many cases is good. Uh, we have there are differences in markets between the United States and, and the rest of the world. Our market is essentially uh, half retail, half institutional. Uh, abroad, it's about 85% institutional and only 15% retail. But so we shouldn't we really say in all of these things that investors are the ones who ought to be able to decide um, what sort of regulatory regime they want to uh, put their money into. The fear of regulatory arbitrage or the race to the bottom presupposes that government knows best and that investors are, cannot decide for themselves. They're just uh, chumps in the game. So I think investors will continue to invest abroad and absent any sorts of exchange controls or restrictions, and that's probably a good thing. Um, and that just will help to keep us over here honest. Um, we can compare, for example, um, in the United States, a mixed regulatory regime, um, our banking regulation, which is a mixture of federal and state regulation, where you have um, the Fed, the controller of the currency, the OTS for thrifts, and the states all variously competing to a certain extent over, um, over products. And a lot of the innovation, a lot of new products have developed through that sort of healthy, I would um, say, competition. But of course, regulatory competition can also be bad. We have our aspiring governors, our AGs, who um, uh, have overlapping jurisdiction, especially in the um, uh, with respect to securities. Um, and we've seen how that has not been uh, used, I think, to the best effect. It's created market uncertainty. We've seen, in some cases, what I'd term regulation by press release, where there's um, uh, a lack of due process in many cases. And in fact, in some of these cases, a state has been able to um, uh, impose substantive regulatory requirements on international market participants, whether they be securities firms or mutual funds or whatever they may be, um, even though at the same time the market itself was working. The miscreant firms were finding that they had huge capital outflows or were losing business to in favor of funds that were not implicated in some of these scandals. And in California, there was a lawsuit against a large uh, um, mutual fund, Capital Research and Management, and they did the unheard of thing in opposing that lawsuit. And in fact, they won, in fact, in state court in California, um, where the California court found that, yes, uh, basically, with respect to mutual funds anyway, um, there has been uh, uh, essentially federal preemption. You also see, with respect to plaintiff's attorneys in the trial bar, you could also say that's uh, a bit of uh, regulatory competition in a different way. Um, we have uh, overlapping, potentially, uh, jurisdiction between um, antitrust, uh, um, uh, antitrust regulatory regime and the securities laws. And in fact, there's a case pending before the Supreme Court, which I hope they will take cert. Um, it's called Billing versus Credit Suisse which uh, um, the plaintiffs are alleging in the I IPO um, uh, downdraft that um, there was uh, manipulation and, um, and other sorts of things, all of which in their, what they charge in their complaint is true. It's, it uh, implicates antitrust um, uh, problems, but all of the things that they are alleging also implicate the securities laws. Um, so there's this overlap, and so where, you know, how will that be resolved? Um, and so hopefully um, the court will, uh, will uh, 
take this uh, case in hand and, and help resolve it because I think essentially it's an end run around the uh, Public Securities Litigation Reform Act, uh, which required higher uh, pleading standards uh, in securities cases, uh, which was passed by Congress um, over the President's veto back in 1996, I believe it was. Um, anyway, I uh, don't want to talk too long, but I, I wanted to say finally that um, the SEC itself has been rather schizophrenic uh, in respect to competition versus uh, regulation. Um, we, in some cases, we've followed a good disclosure policy to let investors try to choose where they uh, want to invest their money. And in other cases, we have imposed a one-size-fits-all uh, type of regime. Um, uh, recently, with our mutual fund independent chair rule or hedge fund registration rule or market uh, um, national market system rules, which I'd call sort of regulation by dinner party or by gut. My gut is better than your gut. Um, and we sort of have decided for the marketplace. Luckily, the courts have stepped in with help from uh, some of the people on the panel here to uh, put us back in our place and, and vacate these rules, which um, I think were not productive. Um, but essentially what this has shown and how market participants have viewed these rules is that um, if your neighbor's house is on fire and you live in a townhouse, you better um, uh, help uh, that neighbor put out his fire. We've seen the Chamber of Commerce step in on that mutual fund independent uh, chairman um, rule because they were afraid that that approach, that philosophy, might eventually find its way throughout corporate America with SEC or others uh, imposing um, that sort of one-size-fits-all regime. The National Venture Capital Association stepped in with their, and other uh, private equity funds stepped in with respect to our hedge fund rule because that same philosophy, although not applied to them immediately, could be applied to them um, later. And foreigners and others um, have stepped in with respect to Sarbanes-Oxley uh, with respect to some of the, both the statutory provisions and, and uh, our rules um, to try to help us um, learn how those provisions adversely affected them and, uh, and so we had to, uh, um, luckily we took steps to uh, uh, straighten that out and with respect to some of the ongoing problems there we are taking steps I hope uh, we'll start that next uh, month uh, to make it better. So all that returning back to John Dunn as, uh, as I started out, um, you know our 17th century firebrand um, uh, poet. I don't think he was necessarily a 17th century socialist in the manner of it takes a village or something like that. We can leave that to some of our other colleagues, uh, English professors, to decide what his politics might have been. But I think his injunction is pertinent uh, to today's capital markets and why we always need to be ever vigilant um, as to safeguard market freedoms and um, investor choice versus government fiat. You know, again, his uh, meditation said, no man's an island in the of itself. Um, and it, it ended with, um, therefore, never send a no for whom the tell bell tolls, it tolls for thee. So I think we always have to realize that uh, if government usurps uh, some of market freedoms, that we all lose. Anyway, thanks. Well, good morning, everyone. In the antitrust context, um, mere double dipping would be wishful thinking. In the United States alone, we have two federal antitrust agencies. We have um, federal agencies 
that have some responsibility for competition issues, like the FCC reviewing telecom mergers or the uh, DOT reviewing airline mergers. We have 56 states' territories in the District of Columbia, all with their own antitrust uh, statutes. And we have an active system of private antitrust enforcement fostered by the prospect of tribal damages. And while this domestic web of enforcement presents a lot of challenges, um, that, I think, is not even our greatest challenge today. In 1990, there were roughly 25 competition agencies around the world, some of which were not particularly active. And then as the Berlin Wall came down and we had other developments um, uh, and nations in Eastern Europe and other parts of the world began the arduous process of trying to convert from state-run economies to market economies, um, aid organizations and financial institutions made it very clear to these countries that establishment of a competition agency was a prerequisite to their getting assistance. The European Union made it clear to countries who wished uh, uh, to be part of the Union that, in fact, they must have an antitrust agency. And, of course, the developed countries generally made it clear to developing countries that this was uh, important. This would show that they were serious about moving to a market economy. So just over 15 years later, we now have more than 100 competition agencies around the world. Russia, for example, recently passed a new competition law. And China has now been working on a new competition law for about 10 years. Um, and that law is now um, has had its first reading in the National People's Congress. And while unquestionably this movement away from state-controlled economies is a victory, we nonetheless have to deal now with the fact that we have competition enforcers who have little or no experience with or faith in markets, who have few or no experienced uh, staff, including economists. In fact, I think that in some places, the staff from the old um, uh, state monopoly office now um, is the competition staff, and no real supportive infrastructure like a, like a highly functioning um, judicial system. And even among developed nations and agencies with years of experience, some define the level playing field is one in which a, sex, a, a successful multinational firm must share intellectual property or other assets with weaker local firms, um, maybe often weaker because, in fact, they've never had to compete before, um, so that all will have the chance to succeed, never mind the investments uh, that the stronger firm uh, has made. The greatest danger, of course, in this global regulatory maze is that it will deter precisely the type of aggressive competitive conduct on which markets thrive, the very competition that we enforcers are supposed to be protecting. Antitrust is an area in which over-enforcement and promotion of multiple divergent enforcement views and requirements can cause affirmative harm because, in fact, businesses may have to tailor their behavior so that they will pass muster with the most respect, re restrictive of the enforcers. And it's no secret that even officials in developed nations often disdain what they refer to as our form of cowboy capitalism. I was reminded of this early in my tenure at the FTC when I was reading remarks by President Jacques Chirac of France, of course, and he was talking about um, the passage of a new law that was to um, uh, that was to benefit consumers. I believe, actually, it was some sort of a class action uh, statute. And he said this, let us favor competition, not wild competition that destabilizes whole fields and endangers economic sectors, but rather regulated competition. <laughs> the McKinsey Global Institute recently completed a 12-year study 
in which its researchers set out to determine the reasons for vast economic disparities between rich countries and poor by studying the economic performance of 13 nations, including the United States. And in his book explaining the results, the book is The Power of Productivity by the Institute's founding director, William Lewis, he dispelled many of the sacred cow wisdom on the subject and finds that productivity provides the answer. And the United States has such a high level of productivity, he says, because it has such a high level of competitive intensity. But, the study concludes, the United States was able to develop its economy without the heavy burdens of regulation that developing countries today are saddled with as a result of the OECD nations exporting regulation and big government. Mr. Lewis says, and I quote, the rich countries today have given the poor countries a curse. That curse is not globalization. It is big government. Well, take, to, to give you some, a, a, a real live example um, that I heard about recently, two U.S. companies in a d- dynamic industry proposed to merge. And the United States Department of Justice Antitrust Division engaged in their investigation, which took less than two months, and they cleared that deal. But the parties <coughs> also had to file a merger notification in another foreign jurisdiction because uh, the buyer had a subsidiary in that jurisdiction even though that subsidiary did not manufacture the only product that was of competitive significance, the only product that had a competitive overlap. And for the competitive overlap product, the two companies combined had less than $10 million in sales in that particular company. But in any event, the parties had to file this notification. They did it. The jurisdiction several times wanted more time, so they requested that the parties pull the filing and restart the clock, which the parties did. They then received the equivalent of our second request. The parties then made a number of divestiture offers, all of which were rejected by this jurisdiction, and after several months of this, uh, the deal cratered. And we, and no one else around the world, will ever know how efficiencies, perhaps, from that deal would have benefited our consumers um, because uh, the market in the United States for these products was much larger. This, unfortunately, is not atypical today. The fact is that U.S. and other multinational firms routinely must make merger notification filings in a dozen or more jurisdictions, even for relatively small deals. One large U.S. company has told us that it routinely makes merger filings in countries where the cost of the filing far exceeds the total sales and assets of the acquired entity in the jurisdiction. So mergers provide easy examples given their requisite regulatory filings, but an equally if not more serious problem Um, that the proliferation of competition regimes may be producing is in the area of single-firm conduct, that is, in monopolization. Just ask Microsoft about its experience in dealing with divergences between the United States and, for example, Europe and Korea. But Microsoft is not the only one. So what are we doing about all of this, and how how are we preventing a complete disaster? Well, let me first go back um, to the domestic side um, briefly. On the domestic side, the FTC and the antitrust division have an MOU um, through which we allocate um, uh, matters in, uh, on the civil side of antitrust. And I will tell you that um, it works uh, well most of the time. Um, and when it doesn't, it can be costly. Um, the, uh, there's uh, no time I can think of in recent experience in which one, uh, in which each, um, each uh, agency has taken a crack, except in the 90s, the FTC deadlocked two to two on whether to bring a case against Microsoft. 
um, and uh, then the DOJ took it up, and um, the rest is history, of course. Then in addition, we in the Antitrust Division cooperate with the states. We have a 1998 protocol uh, for coordination and merger, uh, and, and we also have a federal state working group that, um, that meets either by telephone or in person on a monthly basis to talk about issues and sort out um, where there may be uh, uh, differences and the like. And this works very well, I would say, most of the time. But again, coming back to the Microsoft case, that provides an example uh, in which, of course, the federal government ultimately uh, settled the case. Um, ten states and the District of Columbia decided the settlement uh, was not, in their view, accurate, uh, adequate went forward, um, went, uh, uh, continued in the district court um, at great cost, um, and ultimately and ultimately lost um, on the remedy that, that, that they wanted. And as for private enforcement, we at the agencies have been very highly active in the Supreme Court um, and in our appellate advocacy to ensure that development of antitrust law does not take a wrong turn as a result of private um, antitrust enforcement. But you know, I think this advocacy has been very important and effective, but there's no denying the fact that most companies will settle large private class action antitrust lawsuits rather than face a jury with the prospect of, of trouble damages. And at the FTC, we have had a class action project in which we have at times examined proposed uh, antitrust class action settlements to, um, to determine, and we have filed um, the occasional amicus brief to let the judge know that we think that the lawyers are making out quite nicely. Thank you very much. Uh, while consumers uh, were getting absolutely nothing. Going back to the international arena, what we've done is we've built very strong relationships with our major trading partners like Japan and Europe, Canada, um, Australia, and our staffs, um, particularly with the Europeans, are working together on a daily basis on overlapping antitrust matters, mostly in the merger arena and, of course, in the cartel arena, uh, also for the Justice Department. And we've been mostly successful in avoiding divergences in that realm. The last um, major divergence that we had was in 2001 in the GE Honeywell um, in the GE Honeywell matter. We work directly with countries like India and China in the process of developing their competition laws, and we've had extensive discussions with these and other countries. We have a very active technical assistance program. In the last two years, we in the Antitrust Division have worked with 20 developing countries around the world, including Vietnam where the president has been uh, this week, um, working with agencies to try to set up their agency, um, explaining um, how we do things. Um, this is not easy, but it's very important. And we participate, of course, in multilateral organizations, including one that uh, the two agencies helped uh, start in 2001 called the International Competition Network. We started with 16 agencies. We now have 99. Um, we'll see uh, who's going to be number 100. but. Um, um, and we've done, and we, what we do is we work on a project basis. We have no bureaucracy, no um, secretariat. We just work within our agencies um, with some help from the outside. And we build best practices, um, which, uh, which folks can then on a, um, go back to their countries and implement. And that has really started to show some success, particularly in the area of merger process where many countries have taken the best practice principles back to their own countries and literally changed, their, um, changed the way they are, they are doing merger process. So we are making some progress, some progress there. The problem, of course, is that you can never know the extent to which the global maze is chilling the aggressive competitive conduct that economies really need to thrive. But I will leave you with two, two thoughts where I think we can um, – where I think we could get help 
from the private uh, community in this country. First, the line of complainants at the door of the European Commission is loaded with <coughs> U.S. firms who are there to complain about the practices of U.S. firms that have significant market shares. They know that the EC's rules require it to open an investigation whenever a complaint is lodged. And they, um, and, and they, we are told, believe that the EC will be more sympathetic to complaints from competitors. And some of those same companies don't bother to come to, into the FTC, uh, even though they're U.S. companies, or to the DOJ. Apparently, because while we welcome all antitrust complaints, uh, we'd like to hear about them, we do show a healthy skepticism toward complaints about competitors, given the clear um, incentives to rent-seek um, if, if, if we allow it. So while forum shopping is a fact of life, I wonder whether it is a wise move in the long run for U.S. companies to be encouraging the adoption of a more regulatory approach toward um, successful firms. And second, I'm detecting that some of the I'm okay, you're okay school of dealing with other jurisdictions on these issues is starting to creep into even our own um, antitrust bar when dealing with other jurisdictions. I understand that when uh, lawyers are representing clients, of course, they have to do that to the best of their ability. Um, but uh, suggestions that standing up for the U.S. system when you were in policy discussions and conferences abroad m makes you an ugly American uh, are complete nonsense. And uh, all players, I think, would do well uh, in the business community to support a system that that, make, that holds companies to the rules, but that does not preach undue intervention. Thank you very much. Um, Judge Smith, thank you for the introduction. It's a pleasure to be here today. I'm going to talk more about issues really uh, within the U.S.'s borders um, more so than uh, Deborah and to some extent uh, more than Paul. So uh, to me, this is the... Um, this is the Federalism Stinks panel. Um, we, we do these occasionally at the Federal Society, um, just confirming that we're prepared to follow the truth wherever it may lead. Uh, these panels uh, tend to include people like me who spend a lot of their time advising companies on how to achieve compliance uh, nationwide, which can be increasingly an extremely, extremely aggravating project, but also uh, uh, some consolation good for revenues. Um, <laughs> I'll uh, speak then um, from the perspective of, first, a labor and employment lawyer currently in private practice representing uh, companies in these circumstances. Um, and secondly, somebody who's held a federal prosecutorial position where I, I thought about these issues a bit in that capacity. And then, and then uh, third, but a distant third, somebody who's uh, also uh, been involved in some SEC regulatory matter, matters, including a couple that, uh, that uh, Mr. Atkins adverted to. So. Um, in the uh, labor and employment area particularly, uh, as Deborah indicated, um, here too, it's not just double dipping. Um, I think in the labor and employment area, what I see uh, primarily is a problem of uh, uh, triple dipping uh, regulatory uh, compliance and challenges. Um, one, obviously federal regulation. Second, uh, state regulation. And, and third, private litigation. Um, and the, uh, you know, I, I should say, by the way, that um, the problem we're talking about here, which to some extent, um, when you look within the U.S. Uh, borders, is, is one of uh, preemption, is an area where uh, labor and employment law, more than other areas of the law, has at times sort of taken a, a fairly firm position, um, but does not have an altogether coherent philosophy. ERISA is highly preemptive, although even within ERISA, uh, there's inconsistency and unclarity. Um, the National Labor Relations Act is another highly preemptive law 
Um, and yet, as we'll see, there are other very important labor and employment laws at the federal level that aren't preempted. Uh, uh, there's both, uh, I think, some measure of unclarity uh, on the degree to which and reasons for which ERISA and NLRA preempt, but also and more so as to, well, why don't some other laws as well? But um, the, the, the challenges that uh, people representing corporations right now are seeing in this area, I, I think, come from two principal sources. One is private litigation under the uh, under state wage hour laws, which for a long time were quiescent. There was very little state wage hour litigation intended to be federal, but anybody following California litigation recently knows, for example, that there are now hundreds of these uh, wage hour cases being filed in California a year, some of them with uh, enormous stakes. For example, um, uh, one company, uh, Farmers, was hit for $200 million in a, a state wage hour case. Uh, Smith Barney uh, was hit for about a, a $100 million, and there have been other cases of about that magnitude. These are cases involving uh, some question as to whether the employer had properly uh, characterized, classified its employees, its assistant managers, for example, as exempt from the overtime requirements. They weren't paid overtime. Jury finds they should have been. That's uh, overtime liability going back a couple of years. Um, not an area, by the way, where you uh, would sort of particularly see a strong local interest. Um, in the area of, of minimum wage, for example, if there's going to be a minimum wage, you can certainly see that that sensibly could vary uh, uh, by locale, but whether uh, an assistant manager is an exempt executive or administrative employee would not regard as necessarily a matter of intense local concern um, rather than broader national concern. Um, so the consequences of this kind of litigation are, uh, you know, obviously first, great monetary payments, um, and second, um, as I've uh, suggested, uh, great difficulty in administering uh, nationwide plans. Under ERISA, that's cause for preemption, one of the principal grounds and explanations for ERISA preemption is the need for employers to uh, uniformly nationally administer their benefit plans, but there's not at this point the same ability to uniformly nationally administer um, employee uh, monetary compensation plans. Uh, the second source uh, of pressure uh, that we're seeing in this area comes from unions increasing resort to state and local legislatures to achieve results that they're not able to achieve at the federal level. Um, federal uh, labor and employment law uh, legislative has essentially been static for decades now. Um, attempts to amend the National Labor Relations Act, for example, have uh, failed both when advanced by employers and also, and, and more prominently, when advanced by labor unions. And so you see the la labor unions going uh, more often to other legislative bodies. Uh, two examples. One, the uh, so-called anti-Walmart law that Maryland enacted uh, earlier this year, forcing uh, Walmart to uh, spend more on employee health benefits. That was a law that um, I challenged uh, and uh, that we had invalidated on ERISA preemption grounds by Judge Mott's District Court of Maryland earlier this year, now on, now on appeal in the Fourth Circuit, and there are um, as many as 30 similar laws that were introduced in, in other uh, state legislatures and a couple that have uh, also been passed locally. Um, second example, um, again, quite prominent, uh, California and other states have enacted laws that uh, prohibit state contractors from using revenues derived from that contract for activities that oppose union organization. Those laws are being challenged on NLRA preemption grounds. Uh, the Ninth Circuit initially uh, affirmed a ruling that the California law was preempted, but on bonk by a fairly lopsided vote with, incidentally, I think Judge Kaczynski in the majority, the Ninth Circuit found the law not preempted, and I think we might see a cert petition in, in, in that case. So. That's the problem, I think, as it's seen in the labor and employment area, 
and, um, and, and, and how it's playing out to some extent in litigation to date. So let me sort of turn and uh, address the question of, of what, what to do. And I'm not going to um, attempt to propose a legislative solution to this for two reasons. First, as I said, uh, in the federal labor and employment area, the law is fairly static, and it's very hard to make any significant changes, even through regulation, but certainly through legislation. Uh, second, um, the last panelist is, is Mr. Grieva, who's uh, quite distinguished in this area, and my understanding is that he's going to propose a overarching uniform resolution of some of the difficulties that we've been discussing today. <laughs> that, at the same time, is uh, consistent with the values that members of the federal society would hold, and I don't want to step on that, so out of respect, um, I'll instead... Um, I'll instead uh, uh, offer some thoughts first for, uh, uh, I think, how uh, federal regulators can go about their business uh, with some of these difficulties in mind. Um, one, um, they can simply try to bring clarity to their own programs. Uh, the Labor Department, that was one of the reasons we thought the amicus program was valuable. At least we were reducing administrative burdens by, in part, making what we were trying to do clearer. Uh, similarly, uh, Secretary Chow has placed a lot of emphasis on what she calls compliance assistance to bring clarity and, and less administrative difficulty, at least, to the federal programs. Um, second, um, uh, I think federal uh, litigators and regulators can uh, stop and ask, where are our resources truly needed? Um, uh, I, uh, when I was at the Labor Department, thought that some of the smaller wage hour cases involving uh, quite low-paid employees and not necessarily large numbers of them were uh, well worth our efforts because cases involving much higher-paid employees in large numbers we're very likely to attract uh, 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 private uh, practitioners to bring those cases. Um, it seemed sensible to me to focus our resources where we thought others were not going to go, and that's, that's part of what we did. Um, so uh, deploy your resources mindful of uh, where other uh, resources may be brought to bear. Um, flip side of this, don't pile on. Um, uh, you know, just between us, and arguably I bear some responsibility for this, though I would argue not. Um, um, how many different uh, uh, private lawsuits and government lawsuits ultimately needed to be brought against Enron and its officers? Um, I think at some point there probably were enough claims out there under all the different conceivable statutes to cover that base pretty effectively. And, uh, and I think you could make the argument that the rule of law uh, might have been uh, better advanced. At some point there came the day where uh, somebody than, uh, other than Enron maybe should have been the target of uh, enforcement resources. And again, in saying so, I don't mean to uh, criticize any particular case, but I think that um, it, at some point it may become worthwhile to, uh, to look elsewhere. Um, recognizing that can be a hard um, decision to, to make and justify uh, to uh, political overseers. Um, related point, and, and all these are related points, I think. Um, uh, don't view yourself as in competition with other regulators. Um, the fact that somebody else uh, got there first uh, is not a reason that you necessarily ought to get there, too. Um, uh, to the contrary, if we're going to have a federal system as we do, um, it's uh, uh, a sign of function rather than dysfunction that once one regulator is involved, another concludes the system's working. I don't think I need to uh, go there as well. Um, you know, um, when uh, SEC, uh, former now SEC Chairman uh, Donaldson uh, came into office, um, it was widely perceived and said in the, in the, in the mainstream media that um, the SEC had been embarrassed by Elliot Spitzer's uh, aggressive enforcement, for example, in the, in the mutual fund area. Uh, and, and I should mention um, par parenthetically, um, when you do a Google search, as I did this morning for Elliot Spitzer, Bill Donaldson, and embarrassed, you get lots of hits. 
uh, but you don't get the hits that you, you, you don't find that uh, the uh, source of embarrassment was the same thing that um, might have been the source of embarrassment if, um, if uh, instead of uh, Spitzer or Donaldson had been you or I that had been uh, in, 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 they did not tend to be embarrassed about the same things that you or, or I might have been. Um, um, in any event, so against that backdrop then, Chairman Donaldson came in and I think um, it's probably fair to say that he felt that part of his role was to redeem uh, the SEC's reputation by uh, regulating very aggressively in areas where, for example, Elliot Spitzer had been involved. And there may have been failures there. There may have been uh, gaps in the SEC's program to be filled and addressed. But uh, what's clear now is that Chairman Donaldson uh, overstepped uh, the bounds of his authority and, and I think to some extent did bring some embarrassment on the agency in both uh, the mutual fund regulation that was uh, adopted by the agency and, and also the hedge fund regulation that was adopted by the agency. Uh, both of those were uh, thrown out by the D.C. Circuit. The mutual fund regulation was thrown out twice. Uh, Commissioner Atkins knows all of this very well and was an extremely articulate um, dissenter uh, in both of those rulemakings. But I think it's an example, again, that uh, if an area is being vigorously prosecuted by another authority, that's not necessarily a sign of dysfunction at all, and, and treat it that way, and that may be what produces dysfunction. Um, final thing that I think government actors can do uh, in at least some areas is defer to arbitration. When I was at the Labor Department, um, I uh, issued a memorandum to the lawyers in the solicitor's office encouraging them to defer uh, to arbitration in cases where the private uh, 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 individuals had entered arbitration agreements. The Supreme Court has said that the EEOC, for example, or the Labor Department can bring a suit on behalf of an individual even when the individual has signed an arbitration agreement. The fact that they can doesn't mean they should. And uh, the Labor Department has a program, I don't know how vigorously vigor, uh, vigor followed at this point, but has a program to defer to arbitration. It's something the EEOC ought to consider and something uh, other agencies ought to consider as well. Let me address my remarks finally to the private sector and, uh, and what folks in the private sector can do. And just a couple thoughts on that. Um, you know, as I mentioned, you do have these Federal Society panels every now and then about the problems with federalism. Um, and we had a somewhat similar uh, uh, panel uh, uh, last year. Uh, where uh, one of our speakers, uh, this was just for the Labor and Employment Group, one of our speakers was Amy Wax, professor at uh, University of Pennsylvania. And before giving her talk, she took a look at the literature on uh, the degree to, degree to which employers take account of state employment law in deciding where to locate their operations. Now, there's a lot of um, sort of anecdotal surmise that aggressive state regulation of labor and employment will cause corporations to flee. But what Amy found is that there really was very little empirical examination of this phenomenon. Um, and, you know, my takeaway from that panel is, well, we got to look more closely at that. That is something for uh, academics to look at, maybe for uh, private interests to uh, sponsor and fund to a degree, because if it is true, as you can reasonably expect, that aggressive state regulation in the labor and employment area or others will uh, drive out business, cost jobs, raise prices on consumers, um, deplete available services to residents. All of those are things you'd think that state uh, legislators ought to know about when deciding uh, on the laws that are presented before them. Um, uh, and, and then finally, um, you know, uh, another takeaway I had from the panel uh, on, on a um, somewhat um, less elevated letter, level, but same concept, is let's have rankings of states according to the degree of their regulation, and again, I'm speaking specifically of labor and employment law, but you can see it in other uh, areas as well. Uh, worst to best states to locate your business in, 
based on the uh, labor and employment environment. That is something that uh, companies could use in making their decisions, and it's something that could discipline uh, uh, states as they consider what further laws to enact or, um, we should never forget, uh, repeal. So, uh, you know, that at least is one sort of market-based idea to address the uh, difficulties in regulation that we're discussing today. In some areas, um, the multiplication of regulatory regimes that hit one single firm are just a function of the increased scale and scope of economic production. Uh, I, I think international antitrust uh, is an example of that. Uh, you really don't want one worldwide regulator. Uh, at the same time, these firms operate in many markets. The price effects rattle all over the place. And so at the end of the day, if you want to sort this out, you'll have to talk to the Europeans. Uh, and if you don't think that's a problem, you've never met a European. Um, <laughs> but here at home, uh, I think uh, the opportunity for regulatory quadruple dipping, the multiplication of regulatory agencies and access points, um, is the deliberate result of a political uh, program. That program is commonly known as the New Deal. Prior to the New Deal, you had a regime of exclusive federal jurisdiction and exclusive state jurisdiction, and moreover, a regime that made it very clear which of the individual states um, had uh, authority over any given transaction or firm, under what circumstances. And so under those circumstances, um, regulatory double-dipping or whatever you want to call it was relatively rare. But of course, the New Deal had three uh, interlocking commitments that cut against that uh, exclusive regime. The first of these principles is uh, the, the New Deal's overriding program, which is cartels at every level, um, not just the national level, but also in the states. Uh, the classic case in that, uh, in, in that uh, area is, is, of course, Parker versus Brown. Second, that's your political program, cartels at every level. You need concurrent state and federal powers over the entire range of economic transactions because otherwise the regulated firms will sort themselves into one or the other uh, regime. They'll migrate and that's the last thing you want. And the third thing the New Deal ensured was uh, to make sure that the strictest regulator will always dominate the entire universe. So cartels at every level, concurrent powers everywhere, make sure the strict, strictest regulator uh, always wins. Welcome to Felix Frankfurter's Constitution. That is the system we have. That is the system we live with. But I think a system that is consciously made and designed can be consciously unmade and undesigned. The New York Times accuses me of wanting to overrule the New Deal. That is not my program. I want to undermine the New Deal by means of underhanded quasi-constitutional doctrines, and I yield to no one in my endorsement of these, these doctrines. There are any number of them, but the, uh, the one I want to talk about today is, is preemption doctrine, which I think is actually quite instructive. Again, prior to the New Deal, you had a regime of exclusive powers. Little known fact, it was what we now call, it, the, the Supreme Court's doctrine was what we now call um, field preemption everywhere, um, regardless of congressional uh, intent. As soon as Congress spoke at all, the states were completely blocked from that entire area. Now, of course, the New Deal greatly expanded the scope of the Commerce Clause, and so the New Dealers sat around and said, oh my God, what does that leave of the states? Um, 
nothing at all. And so what the New Deal tried to do is to compensate for the expansion of the Commerce Clause uh, by throttling back on the preemptive effect of federal statutes, and that is called the presumption against preemption. And that is sort of the, the, the core of preemption doctrine to this day. The origin of that doctrine is a case uh, that's always cited is, is Rice versus Santa Fe. Um, the historic police powers of the states are not supposed to be preempted unless Congress has clearly indicated its intent to do that. And so then out of that case come, comes of the, the modern uh, preemption doctrines, all of them. Um, it would be useful if people who cite Rice versus Santa Fe actually read it on occasion. I have done so, and it turns out it's not a preemption case at all. What happened there was um, the, the, sub, uh, the, the, the statute at issue in that case was the Federal Warehouse Act, like um, uh, grain warehouses, which had to be regulated because they were a bottleneck uh, between farms and, and food processors. They had been regulated at the state level. In 1931, Congress passed this act and said, dear warehouse operator, if you want a federal license, you can have it on the following conditions. And in that case, state regulation ends. Federal regulation is exclusive. With respect to local warehouses uh, or state-regulated warehouses, we don't preempt anything at all. It was like a dual warehousing system, like the dual banking system um, we now have. Um, but the, the, the federal law operated only at the operator's own choice. Nothing at all was preempted. All this gobbledygook from preemption, uh, from, from rice that now shows up in preemption cases, has nothing to do whatsoever um, with the case. And you look at what the Supreme Court did to that statute in this, this, uh, this case. Um, it held um, that despite the fact that the statute said the federal license is exclusive, it's, it said, oh, no, 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 the states can, in some areas, still regulate federally licensed operators because, said Felix Frankfurter, otherwise the gates of escape will be opened. Um, his concern was not that, that Congress was trampling on the states because, obviously, it wasn't. Uh, his concern was that the federal regulators had not created a rate-making regime which he really wanted. And so if it's not rate-making, it can't be a real serious uh, federal regime, and so therefore the states have to be uh, allowed to operate on top of um, the federal statute, even though it said it was exclusive. It was a desperate attempt to squeeze this perfectly fine pre-New Deal statute into his concurrent powers framework. If that's not the preemption doctrine you want, and I think it isn't, uh, then what is it? And I'll give you sort of four guide or a few guideposts of what I think preemption law ought to look like, and then I'll, I'll apply it to sort of two, two cases. The first principle you want to start with is an anti-circumvention principle. Um, if, if the direct offense of the statute is prohibited, uh, states shouldn't be allowed to evade it and, and regulate around it. Second, I think you want to construe preemption doctrine consistent um, with a dormant commerce clause, or rather with the federalism risks against which the dormant commerce clause is supposed to guard. And there are three of them. The first is the balkanization of the economy. The second is the risk of state discrimination against out-of-state commerce. 
and the third is the state's tendency to export the costs of their regimes. If any of those risks are present, I think you ought to read the statute to imply preemption. And if not, uh, if none of these risks are present, then you want to uh, sort of cut the state's slack, and, and um, uh, I think that's the good sense of this pre presumption against preemption in historic state powers areas. Uh, I can't go into the details here, but I'll give you two quick examples of how I think this shakes out. My first example is antitrust. Um, if you look at uh, cases dealing with preemption in that area, this, the courts always say, well, the Sherman Act is supposed to be supplemental to state regulation. And that's kind of true. But what the state, what the courts in the 20s, when the supplemental uh, language came up, what they meant was that the Sherman Act regulates interstate conspiracies and the states regulate in-state conspiracies or conspiracies with only in-state effects. Um, how do I know that? Well, that's what the Sherman Act says. And what, what supplemental meant after the New Deal is that, well, the states regulate the full range of private conduct and the feds regulate the full range of uh, private conduct, and at the end of the day, the feds noodle around with the local taxicab commission and the state of West Virginia regulates Microsoft, and isn't that a great regime? <laughs> Nothing in the statute commands that kind of outcome. Um, I simply think, uh, I mean, if, if you take pre the, the preemption regime and the federalism analysis that I've, I've sort of sketched in, in broad contours seriously, it turns out Parker versus Brown is wrong, and that I think is the right result. It also turns out that California versus ARC is wrongly decided, and I think that's also true. My second example, very quickly, is securities regulation. The way I read the Securities Act, and I don't care what the Enforcement Division says, is there's already plenty of authority to preempt Elliot Spitzer under Section 2, under Section 11. I don't care how it does it. Anything that interferes with the national markets, with national cap functioning national capital markets, can and ought to be preempted, I think, um, because otherwise the balkanization and cost exploitation risks are just too serious. I could go on at length, but I won't. I just will end on this note. Um, double dipping and these regulatory conflicts in the United States are not a force of nature. They're deliberate creation. And I think the obstacles to getting rid of it or curbing it are not at all legal. I think they're political. Um, so it, just very quickly, um, we have an antitrust modernization commission, which is supposed to study what's wrong with antitrust. Um, the preemption issue is the big elephant in their lavish quarters. They're just ignoring it. They're not saying anything about it. Uh, similarly, it, it, at the SEC, and, and Paul knows much, 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 much more uh, about this than I do, but I know at least one example from the early 1990s um, when the SEC looked at the preemption of state blue sky laws. Dick Breeden thought he had the authority to preempt those laws, but then didn't do it. And then uh, the SEC waited around for Congress until Congress mercifully got around to preempting the states, at least in that respect. Um, but my strong suspicion is there are more things that federal agencies can and ought to preempt now. Um, uh, my, my only advice is once there's a regulatory crisis and Elliot, Elliot Spitzer is on the war path, it's too late. In the, under those circumstances, it's really hard to do. You really have to lay the groundwork for those kinds of moves uh, when there's a little quiet uh, and nobody notices 
But when there's quiet, by all means, go ahead and do it. Thank you. As I would say to uh, oral arg argument uh, advocates before a Court of Appeals panel, uh, I regret to tell all of you that each of you has used up his or her rebuttal time. <laughs> so we're going to go ahead and move to questions if there are any from uh, any of you uh, in the audience. And then if there is time after the questions, if any of the panelists uh, has anything to say uh, in closing, uh, we'll have time for that if it's before 1230. Um, we do have some pretty strict rules about the questions. A question is uh, a sentence in which the subject and verb are inverted and there's a question mark at the end. Uh, if you want to make a speech, talk to the Federal Society people about being on a panel yourself next year and I'm sure they'd be glad to consider you. But we really, we really don't want uh, speeches here. This is your opportunity to engage uh, in a sincere dialogue with, with this distinguished panel. So I hope you'll limit yourself to true questions. You can direct your question to any one or more of the panelists or to all of them, and then I'll invite them to respond as they, uh, as they like. Okay, go ahead. Thank you. Uh, John Shu from Stradling, Yonka, Carlson, and Routh in Newport Beach. My question is for the panel. Um, do you all foresee future uh, coordination or perhaps even um, competition uh, with regulatory regimes in developing countries like China uh, or Vietnam. Thanks. Anybody? Well, well, the answer to that is absolutely yes. Um, the reason that we've been working with, uh, working so closely with the Chinese to take the biggest example um, uh, is because you know we recognize that um, that multinational uh, corporations who wish to invest in China and and sell products in China um, have a great interest uh, in 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 what China is doing. And lot, to be honest, um, speaking of competition, lots of other um, regimes around the world are also talking to China about the way they should. Uh, uh, be drafting their law. And I think there's a little bit of a competition going on there, if you will. And, um, you know, part, part of the problem is that when you're going from um, an economy of um, monopolists, basically state-run or owned monopolists, and now inviting in foreign investment, the temptation, and we're seeing this, is to apply the new laws in such a way that they really only apply to those who are coming in from the outside. Um, you know, that we're being told, well, those are the strong companies, and they're stronger than ours, and we're ne we need to have a level playing field. Um, so we need to break them down. And so it's a very, um, there's no question that we are worried about this, um, uh, and, uh, and it's, it's going to take a long time to shake out. Uh, there, I, I went to China myself this year. I've met with a lot of high-ranking Chinese officials. Um, many of them are, are reformers. They have assured us that they're committed to this, but we're planting trees here, I and mean, this is not uh, going to happen overnight. And uh, with respect to the capital markets, uh, you know, the developing company countries, of course, are still in the technical assistance stage where they uh, need our help to try to uh, develop uh, along. Um, and so I, um, in the foreseeable future, I don't necessarily see outright competition. And in fact, we're still seeing 
from developing co countries, companies that want to come over here to get the sort of the, the stamp of approval for institutional investors to, uh, you know, that they comply with our laws and that sort of thing. Um, and the only exception to that really are the large uh, Chinese uh, government companies that are being partially privatized, where essentially you're buying a minority interest in a government-owned entity. So, um, so those are not coming over here yet, but uh, anyway. I'll just uh, one quick addition. I think um, at the end of the day, size matters. Um, so, you know, you're always worried about uh, the EU. Uh, you're always worried about uh, Japan. Uh, China is obviously a big, big thing. Um, it, I, I think at the end of the day, the smaller countries, nobody cares really at the end of the day what the antitrust laws in Zimbabwe say, other than for comparisons of legal analysis. Um, it, Right, so so the big the, the, you see this in the United States too. New York and California can do stuff to firms that Kansas can't do, and and I think on an international scale, it's pretty much the same. Question? Uh, yes, I'm uh, John Cook from the Washington D.C. office of Gibbs Gunn and Crutcher, and um, I know that we had talked briefly about um, uh, a risk preemption, LMRI preemption, versus sort of the bank model, which is a consolidated supervision where the banks. And choosing where to incorporate can elect uh, which regulator they want to uh, fall under the jurisdiction of. And I was wondering if you see those as being larger solutions, what the pros and cons of each one of those are, and what, whether it could be extended to the international uh, level as well. Michael's been discussing, in order for it uh, politically to be achieved, I think that we need much greater recognition and therefore quantification than we currently have of the kinds of problems that we're discussing, which I think to date are things that bother uh, senior executives within corporations and those who advise them and try to help them through legal and regulatory hoops, but I think otherwise generally are problems that are not appreciated or recognized by the public at all. So I think what we're talking about is a uh, very long-term project. I think it's um, interesting that uh, the solution to the problem uh, 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 could take uh, radically different forms. Uh, I, you know, I think many would make the case for much less federal involvement now that states have become so much more active, uh, now that there are state laws uh, in probably uh, virtually all states regulating wages and hours and, uh, and, and regulating uh, discrimination, et cetera, do we really need the extensive federal program that we currently have? Should we not move to uh, uh, the repeal of uh, at least some federal restrictions, uh, leave it to the states and, uh, and, and with the hope that uh, the states would, uh, in the interest of not becoming uh, excessively regulatory of business, uh, be more moderate than some have been in how they apply their laws. Some would make that argument. That's one way to look at it. Michael's approach, of course, is, is if I'm understanding correctly, quite the opposite, which is, um, no, what we're talking about here is administrative costs, transaction costs, and um, certain wild-eyed regulators, and the way to do that is to address it through a nationally preemptive scheme. I think we're talking about two potentially very, very different approaches that, to some extent, uh, are addressing slightly different problems. Question? Uh, Mike Francella, Morrison and Forrester. Uh, I'd be interested to hear from any of the panelists, but I think that Dr. Grieva is most likely to have considered this issue specifically. Uh, what general principles, if any, can be adduced 
to distinguish between the substantive areas uh, such as Article 9 of the UCC, where I think many of us think that harmonization is a good thing, uh, substantive areas like uh, blue sky laws, where many of us, I think, think that preemption would be a good thing, and substantive areas like tax policy, where uh, many of us think that competition among regimes would be a good thing. I don't think – I wouldn't try to sort this out by subject area. I would go to the extraterritorial effects of state – uh, regulation, yes or no. That is to say, uh, if you have uh, an issue in any in any subject matter area uh, or any regulatory arena uh, where you can have confidence that um, uh, whatever the state is doing won't be distorted by trying to sort of export the costs of regulatory regimes, inflict externalities on sister states. Uh, if you don't have those worries, then I'm all with uh, Jean Scalia say, leave that to the states. You're much better off with sort of compartmentalized state regulation. Whereas if you have those effects and if they dominate, uh, then I'm a vehement advocate of, for um, federal preemption because the, the risks of states mucking around uh, with the economy and inflicting damage on each other's citizens and firms is just too great. Um, what I would add again is, um, and I'm, I'll admit, a notorious moderate and incrementalist. Um, what I would add is that the sort of um, global change that Michael's describing, I think, um, is a very long-term project, and in the near-term uh, reform in the area, may most effectively be addressed by identifying particular areas where the problem is clearest and therefore where the case for change is greatest and work from there. Anyone else? Question? Yes. I'm um, general counsel of an asset manager having a German parent and there really can't be any greater disparity between the German asset management laws and, and the U.S. Investment Advisor Act and I think Judge Randolph had an excellent decision this year and my question to you is as Commissioner Glassman made in the arguments, it's sort of insane to have the same regime covering what I do, which is sophisticated um, synthetic finance bought only by um, institutional investors covering the same mom-and-pop person going to Prudential. Um, so I, I was wondering, you know, in light of what happened with the hedge fund rule, is there some recognition at the SEC that, you know, applying the Investment Advisor Act to current-day uh, securitization, um, you know, should maybe be rethought. And it, I can tell you from our business, it is affecting um, deals are being done in, out of London, and it is affecting cutting U.S. investors out of those deals being done there specifically to avoid SEC regulation. Right. Yeah, well, uh, we, to be frank, we still have a cultural war going on inside the agency, and uh, there are folks, of course, who just uh, don't understand that. And, um, and that was what produced, uh, you know, the crack up that uh, came before. So uh, we still have uh, lots of uh, work yet to be done uh, on that side. And hopefully we're making some progress. And I think uh, next, you know, with our new chairman and um, I think a firm uh, uh, majority now, I think we'll be able to make some changes next month that might bring us more in line with uh, what you're talking about. So we'll see. I'm hopeful. 
Uh, my question is for Chairman Majoris, but like the other panelists to come in, particularly uh, Dr. Grieva. Um, why the focus on the antitrust laws of other jurisdictions? It seems to me that um, it's, it would be relatively easy for a company to choose not to subject themselves to the antitrust laws of a juris another jurisdiction by not doing business there, and much easier uh, than it would be to say choose not to do business in Rhode Island or Connecticut or some state that might have a overly restrictive regulatory regime. And um, picking up on that, why not instead focus on the competitive effects of state and federal regulation? Because it's much more difficult for a U.S. business to avoid um, avoid those kinds of regulations. That, again, because you have the you know the choice involved in doing business uh, internationally. Just maybe as a data point to reference it, if you look at the fastest growing economies in the world. There are economies with minimal social welfare regulation, but no real effective competition. They're managed economies. Well, um, there's focus today, and then there's focus generally. And today I focused on international because I thought it might be interesting to the audience and something that um, people didn't know about. Um, and uh, but but that doesn't mean, and I only had eight minutes. But that doesn't mean that um, that we don't focus fairly extensively um, on our relationships with the states. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're working on this all of the time, and um, uh, both in terms of individual matters, actual individual mergers, individual conduct matters, and most of the time um, the states do not um, diverge from the feds and, and vice versa. Now, that, that, doesn't, that, that, that doesn't answer the question, though, that, that Michael really has raised, which is if if we're reviewing a merger at the FTC that affects um, consumers nationwide, why do we sometimes have 12 or 15 or more states also investigating it along with us? And, and obviously, Gene Scalia also raised that, the sort of piling on aspect. Um, that There is a cost to that, no question about it. Um, it's a cooperative relationship, typically. It's a good relationship, but yes, I mean, one, one can certainly, one can certainly ask, ask that question. I know there were times when I was at the Justice Department in which um, staff brought an investigation to me that was confined within um, one state, really and truly, and I said, that, that's not for us to do. We ought to send that to the state AG, and the state AG um, wasn't, wasn't interested um, in, in pursuing it just, just within their own state. But the other thing I'd, I'd like to hit on, because we haven't talked about it yet, is there's also a huge impact that state and federal regulatory regimes can have on competition. In other words, in other words, it's not just what we're doing that has an impact on competition. So one of the things that we've done at the FTC in the last two years um, is really increased our competition advocacy program, not only in – it's always been there with respect to Congress behind the scenes, but in state legislatures. And state legislators are now routinely calling on us for opinions about whether particular new regulations and laws will have such and such impact on consumers and competition. And I actually view that as – um, one of the most important things that we do, because there's no question that a, uh, a regulation that bars entry, and let's face it, that's what most of these do, because you have incumbents trying to keep out other, um, trying to keep out new competitors from the internet or what have you, always in the guise of protecting consumers. And we come in and say, no, as long as you give consumers notice of what they're getting or not getting, they don't need this protection. This will only protect the incumbents. So that, I think, is something we are very focused on at the FTC and are going to continue to do. I'll 
make a quick comment, and then Michael may have more to say on this. But um, you know, for uh, all the uh, difficulties that we may identify nationally and differences of opinion that may exist, uh, nonetheless, uh, look at an area like antitrust, and I suspect that there is a consensus uh, about the competitive purposes of the antitrust laws that exists in this country that is by no means comparable and accepted um, internationally. And so um, the challenges being uh, imposed by uh, international regimes would probably tend to be much greater than those in any individual state. And then second and quite related, that's not um, purely just a matter of differences in political belief and ideology. I would suspect that um, international differences at times result from protectionism and a desire to defeat the success of American corporations. And for that reason, too, I think we probably face greater challenges internationally over time. Question? Hi, I'm Cecile Kors-Lindell. I cover antitrust law for um, the Daily Deal. And you've talked about international and state and federal. Could you pull your microphone down just a little bit so everybody can? Yeah, thanks. Sorry. Yep. Um, you've talked about the international issues and state versus federal, but you haven't really talked about the um, FTC and DOJ's antitrust regulatory uh, authority versus a lot of the other regulatory agencies. You briefly mentioned that in your speech. The AMC has talked about trying to get involved and probably uh, trying to say something about clearing the way for DOJ and the FTC to be the sole antitrust regulators. And I'm kind of wondering whether or not you think that uh, that, that would be a good idea, whether it would be helpful, and whether or not, because it, the AMC was created by a Republican Congress, now that we have a Democratic one, is there any hope for any legislation that might actually create sort of a, an area, an antitrust regulation by just those two federal agencies? Well, I don't know that, um, I don't know that the party in control of Congress um, will, make a, will make a difference um, in this, um, there are always stakeholders in every form of bureaucracy, um, and that doesn't necessarily break down along uh, red and blue lines. Um, I think it. I think um, as if I could, if I could um, take a, a, a page from from Jean Scalia. I mean, I think you would have to look individually at the particular um, regulatory regime that is overlapping with competition, and make a determination about whether, in fact, this is, this is a complete overlap um, or whether what the sectoral regulator is doing versus what the antitrust agency is doing are separate, are separate functions. Take, for example, media mergers. Um, when the FTC or the DOJ looks at a media merger, we look at it from the perspective of the economic impact. So the consumer, if you will, um, the one who may be, in, we, we're looking for, on, who may be impacted economically is really often the advertiser. And so we look at whether the advertiser will have um, outlets um, for selling and the like. What we don't do, um, sometimes to the chagrin of uh, legislators and others, is look at diversity of types of viewpoints in media. Um, on the other hand, that is something that the FCC is closer to doing with their broader public interest standards. So you would have to look, for example, uh, at whether um, at whether you would want to continue that kind of that kind of review. From my perspective as an antitrust enforcer, um, I don't want to be determining um, under the antitrust laws whether we have enough diversity of viewpoints out there. 
Um, our model, for one thing, is a law enforcement model. So a lot of it is done in uh, confidential investigations. And I think that um, uh, I think that, that that would come for us to do it in our framework would come perilously close to regulating speech. So I think you'd have to look at it on a case-by-case -case basis and, uh, and decide uh, what kind of policy you want to support. All right. This is going to work out perfectly. We have one more question and about three minutes. So I yield to my yeah. longtime friend Andy Redleaf for the final question. Andy Redleaf, I, I run a group of hedge funds in Minneapolis and primarily for Commissioner Atkins. Um, Chairman Donaldson recently spoke to a hedge fund conference. The gist of his speech being that, that we in the hedge fund industry should really prefer SEC regulation to what the practicable alternatives would, would be. Obviously, the Attorney General of, of Connecticut has taken an interest in, <coughs> in, in hedge funds. He, he threatened us with the IRS, et, et cetera, and I have to say, you know, in general, I found him somewhat persuasive. Could you, you know, kind of comment on, on the, the thrust of that argument? Uh, well, I mean, uh, be careful what you wish for. I mean, I, uh, um, I guess, uh, you know, if you look at uh, the course of history, I mean, uh, there's regulation starts low and then builds up, and I think that's why I mentioned there with the Venture Capital Association and others, they recognized that uh, even though there was a carve-out uh, based on the um, uh, based on the lockup period that would keep uh, um, uh, venture capital funds out of the uh, hedge fund rule, that they realized that over time it would uh, inevitably get to them. And sure enough, if you look at what happened to Amaranth, which uh, was just a famous uh, recent uh, uh, episode where a hedge fund um, bet too much money on natural gas uh, options and whatnot and, um, and blew up, not through, apparently, and we don't know yet, not through any um, chicanery, but uh, really through just bad bets. And so it's not illegal to bet badly and, and lose money as long as you disclose what you're doing. But uh, there, um, Amaranth had, um, had uh, in order to escape the uh, application of the hedge fund registration requirement, they had um, gone to a longer lockup period. They had just beyond two years. So it's inevitable, I think, and that's what the venture capitalists and others uh, recognize, that, the, that this rule would be expanded over time to include everybody. So that's why they fought it. So, um, you know, again, I mean, going back to Michael's point and others as far as, um, uh, you know, what states might do, uh, you know, maybe there would be an argument, uh, especially I haven't analyzed it uh, with respect to the states, but uh, certainly what Congress uh, dealt with in um, uh, the mid-'90s through turning to the um, mutual funds and dividing between states and uh, uh, and the federal government, as far as who gets what sort of uh, regulatory authority, uh, maybe some of that might apply with respect to advisors as well. I'm not sure. But, um, you know, there's always an ability to move from state to state. And, uh, and if Connecticut decides to regulate in too, uh, you know, tough a way and New Jersey doesn't or, you know, South Carolina doesn't, uh, you know, it's only a plane right away. So I, um, I uh, take those sorts of threats um, you know, maybe just as, as that, and it's a big country, and, and we'll see how things go. But I think as far as the federal government goes, I don't necessarily anticipate any new legislation or, or anything like that um, beyond what the SEC is going to be doing next month. Yeah. All right, let's thank all of our panelists for the terrific job.
And please move directly to the luncheon, which is in the grand ballroom. I see.
that's how you'd make it. Thank you. 
They were using a wireless tabletop mics and saber. Oh yeah, you're right, because now it's five cheers. 